Warning, this is the 200th episode of Seriously Wrong. Celebration sounds. Yay. Yeah, 200. My name's Aaron. And my name's Sean. We are back from our little break. This is our bicentennial. Bicent- yeah, but, or, bicentennial would be a 200 year celebration. Right, 200 years, not 200 episodes. Bicent. What's the ending that means episodes of a podcast? Bicentisodes. Bicent episodes. Yeah, so before we go on, I just want to thank everyone for listening, but I want to thank in particular the people who donate to our show to help keep it going. We wouldn't have made it to 200 without you. And without more of you, we're not going to make it to 400. So, oh, no. We really want them to make <laughs> I, I it to 400. I want to hear 400 <laughs> so bad. But no, yeah, really, like you, you make the show happen. And I anticipate that we will make it to 400 thanks to you and people like you. So that's just awesome. It's on Patreon and uh, you get at bonus episodes. Heck so yeah. today's episode is about complementarity. And I want to say, you know, we did 200 episodes. Well, there's some complementarity between myself and you, Aaron. We, oh, you think? We work well together. <laughs> Oh, thank you. I thought so, too. I was too embarrassed to say, but... Well, I wasn't too embarrassed. I was brave. You're shameless. <laughs> You're just <laughs> absolutely I was shameless. shameless. So know what? I'd do it again. We have to acknowledge <laughs> this type of stuff. We're being positive male role models right now by sharing a moment. Mm, yeah. Welcome to the show. Welcome, So this is the third Library Socialism episode. Part three. The trilogy complete. Library Socialism and Usufruct, the use and profit of property, but not its destruction, a changed version of property relations that we propose based on the principles of a lending library. There's Library Socialism and the Irreducible Minimum, which is the level that no one should ever fall below. All human beings deserve housing, food, shelter, community, affection, and so on. And finally, library socialism and complementarity. Complementarity is a way of looking at non-hierarchical difference as something generative. Complementarity is a bunch of different members of a team all do specialized things in relation to each other, and the outcome is greater than the sum of its parts. It's when the elements of a system complement one another rather than clash with one another or insult one another. It's the basis for any functioning complex system. It's the basis for functioning complex ecosystems. It's the basis for functioning complex community groups, technological systems. And for the library society that we want to build, the parts of the society have to work together in a complementary fashion. And we can see the library as an embodiment of the principle of complementarity in action. You have this massive collection of books of all various kinds. And what makes it a library is that incredible diversity of opinions, perspectives, subject matter, and so on, that together cumulatively create something that has its own character. That is the library. It's a place that you can go and learn anything. And the fact that it's not restricted, that it's open, and that there's cooking books and history books in the same place generates something that's better than if we had a cooking library, a history library, and, and so on. 
even within that, say you did have a cooking library, the diversity of cookbooks by different authors from different traditions within it is generative. That access to knowledge and experience and context creates a positive social outcome. And the librarian, but also like the library system and the organization and cataloging and curating the sum of the history of human knowledge condensed down into these individualized libraries or into the larger interlibrary global library exchange system. That system, the library and those people, the librarians, facilitate the complementarity that exists between a person who's seeking information about history and history books. There's a complementary relationship between that person and those things, but you need this institution and these human mediators in order to facilitate that complementary relationship. Otherwise, the person seeking information about history might not be able to find it or might not have access to it. But you can also think of the librarian and library patron relationship as having complementarity to it in that we wouldn't expect everyone to know everything about the library, but you can expect one person or a group of people to together know everything about a library and then help be able to connect people to what they need. Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is brought to you by Working Well Together. Some things just work well together. For example, you can take three or four different weak metals, make an alloy that's stronger than all of them put together. Where does that extra strength come from? That's just how it is. Imagine canvas covered with daubs of paint that create a beautiful picture. But then imagine if all those paint drops were spread across a million canvases. All you would see is one tiny dot on each canvas. It wouldn't be a picture. The dots of paint are all that's there. When they come together, you get a picture. In the business world, they call that synergy. I'm reminded of the delicious French soup, mirepoix. You could put carrots in water and it's all right. You could put celery in water and sure, maybe it's edible. You could put onions in water and it's probably the best of the three, but you put the three of them together in hot water and make a soup. Oh boy, that is such a tasty soup. It's called the mirepoix. It's just got its own character. It's like distinct from each of them. The sum is greater than its parts, you know? It's, it's just they work well together. All oh, this talk about food makes me hungry for combinations of food that are better together than apart, like peaches and cream. Oh, or peanut butter and jelly. Cereal and milk. Roast beef and potato. Bacon and eggs. Lentils and sesame seed and hummus. Curry. It's all curry. Take all these individual little spices, mix them together into a symphony of like the perfect delicious spices. Now I love fruit, but give me a good fruit bowl and you've made my night. Yeah, and if a bowl of different kinds of fruit mixed together doesn't make you realize that working together is working better than working apart, then I don't know what to tell you. Working well together, today's sponsor of Seriously Wrong. So the place that these three concepts, irreducible minimum, usufruct, and complementarity, first were introduced to us and became the basis of our discussions on library socialism, in The Ecology of Freedom by Murray Bookchin, he briefly mentions pre-literate societies basing their societies on these three principles. So there's anthropological historical examples of Neanderthals that were born disabled and were able to grow up to maturity. The only way to understand these disabled Neanderthals being able to reach maturity is that they were taken care of and made part of the community in some way to be allowed to grow and die of old age rather than die of the disability they were born with. I think this example in the human realm about complementarity 
is important to underscore because we have this common liberal conception of diversity, which is criticized by like reactionaries and the right. Oh, you know, liberals like diversity for diversity's sake, like more diversity, like there's no logic behind it, blah, 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 blah. And it's probably true that like liberals don't think deeply about what it means for diversity to be strength. But diversity is strength in a really real sense. Just to make an extreme example, a tall person and a short person might be useful in different situations. Maybe a short person could fit through somewhere, a tall person could reach a high shelf. And together, the short person and the tall person are able to provide mutual benefit to one another. And the same principle applies to the young and the old, to people with various levels of abilities in various ways. And also, I think, really underscores the need for decency and humanity towards people who are differently abled, who have physical disorders or developmental disorders or whatever, is that there's room for them in the human tapestry. Now, this is like something that the Nazis were against. The Nazis said that disabled people needed to like do stuff to prove that they were worth it, like it's worth keeping them alive. There's nothing more horrifying and disgusting than that. And obviously, I think we all listening stand in opposition to that. But what's the basis for that? The basis for that is that we don't let anyone fall below a certain level. And we understand that extending our circle to include everyone gives us benefit. There's a shared benefit. It's not a transactional benefit. It's a generative benefit. It's a positive emergent outcome. Talking about diversity as our strength or like the positive benefits that come with diversity and the criticisms of that. Like, obviously, having difference doesn't mean there's going to be complementarity, that it's all going to work together. Diversity is a strength when there is complementarity, when there is non-hierarchical difference between groups. And so there are major clashes going on that stem from the hierarchical differences and how people are treated. And then these right-wing people who are like, oh, diversity doesn't work, are the ones like actively against all of the efforts that are made in order to foster complementarity between different groups of people in a culture. So, for example, in United States culture, there's like ongoing efforts by anti-racist activists to foster complementary relationships between historically marginalized racial groups in America and the white majority. And one of the ways in which the right-wing critique of diversity is so toxic is that it just becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy where they're fostering the opposite of complementarity. They're fostering tension and clashing attempting to enforce the hierarchy. Maybe we can jump back to sort of what we mean by hierarchy, because there's often a misconception about what hierarchy is or like the naturalness of hierarchy. Like our position is that hierarchy is not like a normal relationship in nature, that it's not comparable to say a boss and employee versus like a predator and prey, which is often the metaphors used by like neoliberal capitalism to describe competition. Because hierarchy refers to specifically sort of a command and control structure where one person has authority over others and the ability to punish them. And there's like different sort of flavors of hierarchy within that, but that's the commonality. Lobsters don't have hierarchy in the sense that there is an institution where a lobster is in charge of all the other lobsters. He tells the lobsters what to do. If they don't listen to him, those lobsters are punished, maybe lose their homes, have to go to lobster jail. So there might be instances of like proto-hierarchies within nature where you have like say a pecking order within a group of roosters. But these are temporary arrangements which can be 
upheaved and are individualized. It's not that the boss monkey picks his son, picks the Donald Trump Jr. monkey, and then makes him the head of the monkey corporation. The point is that hierarchy is a social relationship. It's often institutional. And what we were criticizing when we criticize hierarchy is not that when there's a group of people together, one person might talk more and maybe people look up to them listen to what they have to say. And that sort of like mild social relationship isn't the hierarchy that we're talking about. We're talking about institutional, long-term command and control structures. Yeah, especially when there's compulsive participation in some way, like you need it to get your needs met. Anarchists are often criticized for their anti-hierarchy stance of like, what, you think there should be no leaders? Are you saying that I shouldn't defer to a bootmaker on the issue of boots? And then the anarchist says, no, there's a great quote about that. I actually specifically do defer to the bootmaker on the issue of boots. It's fundamental to anarchism. So what's being described there is an understanding of difference uh, rather than hierarchy. It's not that the bootsmaker is in charge of everyone's boots and can punish you for building boots the wrong way. It's that there's a difference between someone who really knows a lot about boots and someone who doesn't know very much about boots. And so whether you call that sort of like deferring to someone a hierarchy, some people might use language that way. I'd argue to reframe that, to like talk about that in different terms. Because also another key thing about this, about this type of hierarchy, if you want to call it that, is that the relationship between a student and teacher is eventually eliminated. The role of the teacher is to bring the student to the level of the teacher. So there's theoretically someday through this mentorship, through this peer relationship indifference where the gap is closed and then they're both teachers or at least both have the same amount of information as the teacher they both have the capacity to teach yeah and like those kinds of hierarchy relationships command and control relationships are outside of some very specific contexts antithetical to any kind of complementary relationship because the hoarding of power that makes that type of hierarchy possible prevents the people who have the power from adequately meeting all of the needs of the people in the system. Like the lowest down employees at a company are the ones who are the most aware of the fact that they don't have health care or that they don't have enough money to pay their rent or have a vacation to learn things, do skills training, anything. They have all the awareness of those problems and what those problems are, and they feel the immediacy of those problems because they're happening to them. But then the people at the top hoarding all the power needed to meet those needs, they don't have a very high awareness. They have an abstracted understanding from people who've made the case to them but they don't have the same visceral awareness and like connection to those problems. So hierarchies subvert complementarity by enforcing that distance, keeping all the power in one very small concentrated place and not letting it get to the places in the system where it could do some good. Welcome to the Library Socialism Films About Libraries film review, the segment of the show where we review films about libraries. And obviously we review these films on a scale from don't borrow it to borrow it and then borrow it and renew it, which is our highest. Kind of a clever nod to libraries with that ranking system. So this week, Aaron, you watched a movie, a film, film about yeah. libraries called Ex Libris. More than one person recommended 
recommended this film to us. And when I looked it up, it was actually one that I almost went to see at the Vancouver Film Festival, but ultimately decided against it because it's three and a half hours long. Ooh, that's long. Yeah, but it has like rave reviews. And I was always interested in libraries, even in 2017, I think, when that was before we did any library socialism stuff I was like oh three hour documentary about libraries rave reviews maybe I'll check it out it's a non-narrative documentary so they're not like making any arguments or anything like that it's just kind of like immersing you in the world of the New York public library system this is a really special library this library is part of Lincoln Center so we share its mission of presenting artistic excellence of the highest caliber we're also part of the New York Public Library, so we share the library's mission of being a warm, welcoming place that's committed to education and committed to nurturing everyone's individual passions and curiosity. And we like to think that we're a great marriage of those two missions. And this recital tonight really represents that well, in my opinion. Carolyn is an incredible pianist, a great artist. She's performed in many of our city's great performance halls, and she's also, I think, a wonderful embodiment of that welcoming, generous spirit that the library tries to embody as well. Kind of like this series of shots that show all these different elements of the library experience. So you'll see some people sitting on the computers in the library doing whatever they're doing, playing Minecraft, watching videos, one of them like pokes the other one or something. Then you're like in one of the back rooms with all the people on the telephones talking to callers who are looking for specific books or like helping them look stuff up, listening to people read poetry or it's job fair that's going on at the library or you're in the back room listening to this guy who loves talking about public-private partnerships way too much say that over and over again in different contexts. It's really great and it gives you just this like immersive glimpse into how all these different disparate pieces work together to make something that's more than the sum of its parts. Everything a library does, they're these just like amazing institutions that offer so much that doesn't immediately come to mind when you just think about lending books. And yeah, it's really slow paced, it's chill. You can put it on in the background and do other stuff and just kind of let it catch your attention when it does. Or you can sit there wrapped in attention for the whole three and a half hours, your choice. But either way, I do say, what was it? Check it out and renew. Check it out and renew. Is check, the check it out and renew. Whoa, check it out and renew library documentary film. I'm going to have to check that out and then renew it. Yeah, you do have to. Sorry, everyone. If you were trying to take that out of the library, I renewed it because it was so good. Should have placed a hold, which would have prevented him from renewing it. That wraps up another Wrong Boys Library Socialism documentary films about libraries. Film review. Thank you. Complementarity, it's something that you can find in nature or you can find in human societies, but it isn't a guaranteed thing. It's not just like a rigid naturalism that we're arguing when we're talking about complementarity within societies or ecosystems or whatever. It's something that's contingent. It can be created. It can be destroyed. It can happen by chance. But I think it's worth noting that we sort of come alive. We come awake in a system that's really complex and that complementarity is already happening. Complementarity is necessary for function. 
in all complex and like take that as many levels back as you want but like be no biology and they just be like a chaos of atoms like you know that don't cohere in any way to create anything that works like everything's a complex system of some kind or another even if on one level of analysis something's pretty simple there's other levels of analysis where you can look at where it's a complex system in and of itself like a single person's body or whatever is a complex system but it's also just simple it's one unit it's a person depends on how you're looking at it but in order for anything to function there needs to be complementary relationships between the pieces of that system and that's just like a descriptive claim that we notice from looking at nature and looking at complex systems that do work so it's not that everything in nature is always complementary to each other it's that we observe in nature that when aspects of a system are complementary, they work together. And when they aren't complementary, the system degrades. I like this framing. I've been partial to political plurality. Like I've always sort of liked the idea of there being room for difference and exploration and like this, in many cases, a straw man, but maybe also in some cases real, this idea of like a party line or the way things that are supposed to be being enforced rather than like through discussions and difference. I've always favored the difference and plurality side. And I feel like complementarity gives us a good lens on how to talk and think about these differences. And it's also sort of why rather than using market metaphors, we try to use ecosystem metaphors. So you could talk about like the ecosystem of ideas or the ecosystem of tactics rather than a marketplace. Because the way to talk and think about these differences in opinions has to do with can they all work well together more so than can they crush the other one in competition or whatever the marketplace metaphor is there. It presumes a very particular type of relationship. In ecosystems, there's like a lot of different ways that things can work in complementary ways to one another. Sometimes it could even be a type of competition in some instances. And the ecosystem metaphor I like too because it you can use it to defend a diversity of ideas or to express worries about groupthink or whatever while also having like a strong framework for understanding that the reason we want to have differences of ideas is to create productive complementary outcomes. So like certain ideas like, hey, genocide's really good doesn't help produce productive complementary outcomes. So the that's an extreme example, obviously. It's going to depend on context, which ideas work together in what situations. But the ecosystem metaphor really helps grapple with the way that ideas actually relate to one another way better than the marketplace idea where you know everyone goes and sets up their idea stand and then they try to sell the most ideas fight it out in the marketplace and one idea crushes the other one totally destroyed go out of business forever yeah i mean and it's sort of a broken metaphor because i mean companies going out of business don't go out of business through triumphant conflicts where they're like, these are my products. And then they're like, no, these are my products at these prices. And at the end, one is vanquished. I much prefer the ecosystem metaphors because it allows us to choose which parts of nature we want to highlight, which parts of nature we want to actualize or recreate, what sort of like socio-biomimicry we want to do. Much, much preferable to the market metaphor, which was incoherent to start and is based on this conception where we take human ideas about hierarchy and markets and then we project it onto nature and then we say oh look we found in nature examples of hierarchy it's evidence that hierarchy and command and control systems are natural because look all the other lobsters are afraid of that lobster 
that lobster is really proud and all the other lobsters are shameful and follow that lobster. It's just like our society. It's just like a landlord or a boss or a police officer. That process of projecting our relationships onto animals and then using those animal relationships as justifications for what we do is the basis of like social Darwinism and is just factually wrong. We can do something much more interesting with taking metaphors from nature where we look for what it is that we want to actualize in nature, look for examples of it, say like different species who have symbiotic relationships. They're greater than the sum of their parts. They can do things together they can't do alone. We know that humans are in these relationships also. So it's not to deny that bad things happen in nature. Like nature is only this beautiful, pure place in perfect balance until humans showed up and threw everything out of balance. And before that, it was all like cats and dogs living together. It was beautiful. <laughs> just every cat finds a dog and they like pair up and they just like trot around the earth together, like having adventures, fun. That's what the planet was like before we got here. Yeah, so I I mean, I reject that naive view of nature and say like, oh, we just need to live according to nature. We just have to take all the patterns from nature and actualize them in our lives because there are patterns in nature which are disgusting, like laying eggs in each other. (laughs) Yeah, no humans should be laying eggs inside other humans. (laughs) Absolutely not. But we can use aspects of nature, find structures that work in this iterative, repeating process of evolution and complex ecosystems to find hints about the direction that we should go and apply natural metaphors to what we do. Yeah, again, it's looking at what actually works in nature and then trying to mimic that. Hey, gamer son. Oh, hey, non-gamer father. What are you doing? I'm just playing some games. I know you can't pause all of them, but is this the kind that you can pause or? Yes, I can. I can pause it. Like, I'm not a gamer myself, but from previous interactions we had, I know that when you're playing online, you can't just pause because then they can still shoot you and stuff. And I get that. It's totally. But cool. Thanks for pausing. Thanks for asking, being aware that I might be in a situation where pausing is difficult. I appreciate it. Yeah, well, I'm not a gamer, but I try. Some of the other gamers are like, oh, you have a non-gamer father? And I'm like, yeah, it's not so bad. He listens. Well, it's like some of the other parents are like, oh, your kid's a gamer. You know what that means? And I'm like, I don't know what you mean. He's the same conscientious, helpful son that he's always been. Now he just plays games in his spare time and it's a release for him. He enjoys it. Thank you. Non-gamer fathers do understand. Yeah, I was just thinking about something really cool and I wanted to share it with you. And I even thought of sort of a way that I might be able, like, although we have different interests and I'm not a gamer, that I could maybe connect with you and then let me know if it's lame to try, but... I was reading about this thing called companion planting in gardening. Like if you Mm. put certain vegetables and fruits together when you're growing them, there's mutually beneficial relationships between the different vegetables. So like dozens and dozens of examples where you just have this sort of like natural little combination of plants. Like a, a really famous one is the three sisters, squash, beans, and corn. You plant squash, beans, and corn together, and all three of them thrive and grow better together because squash prevents weeds from growing, corn stalks help the beans grow up faster, and the beans make the soil better for squash and corn by pulling nitrogen out. Super cool, and I thought it was super like Minecraft. So from what I remember, and correct me if I'm wrong, in crafting, you'll put down like, here's a piece of wood, here's a piece of wood, here's a piece of stone, and then together you make a sword with it or something like that. I guess that is good. It's just kind of like part of how things are that those things work better together. Yeah, exactly. It's part of how things are. And this is what really blows my mind about it is out there in the world, in nature, there's these secrets to discover. It maybe sounds trite, but there's this 
natural way of things in our relationship to nature where we can put certain vegetables together and make vegetables grow way faster and it's just the way it is and then we figure that out and it's maybe we observe it in nature first of all or maybe we experiment to get there it's like a video game or like cheat code or something it's just like it's out there you yeah know? No, that like, makes sense. like if you know the cheat codes you kind of like make the system work for you way better like hacking the system kind of it makes sense yeah. garden yeah hacking. like hacking the system yeah that's what's so cool about it it's sort of like garden hacks. you need to know the source code in order to hack something yeah so you need like the natural wisdom of what plants work together in order to hack gardening that's really cool dad along the same lines like there's biomimicry where in technology we can take inspiration from nature and then in our design when we're creating technology to make our technology more effective so like we can actually find examples of things that have evolved in nature that have a certain form that serves a purpose that we might not have guessed and then replicate what we find in nature which was sort of hardened by evolution that was created through the process of evolution over a long period of time and then take those features from you know plant life or wildlife and then apply that to technology and generate good outcomes from observing nature and then implementing the wisdom that nature shares with us that was created through the process of evolution it's so cool isn't that kind of like how they made airplane wings they based them off of bird wings the shape of them to get the lift absolutely no there's tons of examples of successful biomimicry for example in the united states they invented forms of wind turbines they took inspiration from the lumps on the fins of humpback whales and it turns out those lumps actually served a purpose about generating more drag so they used the whale lumps as inspiration for wind turbine lumps, which generate more power with less speed. At the 2008 Olympics, Speedo produced a form of bathing suit that replicates these little tiny hooks on the skin of sharks that helps them move forward in the water faster. For whatever reason, this little shape of hook at a tiny microscopic level makes the water move aside easier. 98% of people who won medals in the 2008 Olympics for swimming were wearing this type of swimsuit. And as a result, the Olympics actually banned that material for giving an unfair advantage. There's also a shopping mall in Zimbabwe that uses 10% less electricity to cool it than other shopping malls because in the design process of building the shopping mall, they emulated cooling dynamics that exist within termites' nests. Wow, yeah, that is really cool. My mind's just reeling with all the possibilities. Looking at how nature works and like using those cheat codes, that's brilliant, Dad. Thanks for interrupting my game for this. No problem. You know the 20-20-20 rule, right? For every 20 minutes you spend looking at a screen, you should look at something 20 feet away for 20 seconds. That reduces eye strain. Probably won't do that. It's hard to do. Maybe we can just biomimic me some new eyeballs after I break these ones. You know, I, that is some edgy cynicism, but fingers crossed that we perfect self-driving cars um, or replacement eyeballs because there's no way in hell anyone's doing that shit. And like your generation, I mean, my generation, we got bad eyes, but your generation and your eyes are going to be, God knows what, dried up. Yeah, wrinkled like prunes. Extra space around the eyeball in the socket. A little prune in there. Ugh, it's creepy. A little unblinking prune. Well, I better get back to causing that to happen. Okay, cool. I'll see you later. I'm going to go watch TV and my phone. Cool. Two screens. Two screens, two eyes. You enjoy the games. Always do. Part of a balanced lifestyle. Talking about the social ecological idea of first nature, second nature, third nature. First nature being nature that exists 
pre-humans or without humans the wild nature wild nature (laughs) and then second nature is human artifice human society human existence what humans have built because that's all natural too that's part of nature we are part of nature and then the idea is third nature is the complementary melding of these two things in a way that makes sense because we're destroying the habitability of our biosphere and like broadly the process through which we're doing that is by not having a complementary relationship we're having a, a type of relationship where we clash with nature where we insult nature where we destroy nature for our own immediate benefit but long-term loss because it's all part of the same system we're not mimicking what works in nature by finding ways to exist in a complementary relationship with our ecosystem. We're mimicking what doesn't work in nature and we are... We're innovating new ways to not work in nature. (laughs) Yeah, we're innovating new ways to insult nature, to exist in an insultarity type of relationship with nature because of this kind of like ideological view that humans are above nature separate from nature that our rationality has uplifted us to this place where we can impose our will on nature that nature is subordinate to us rather than something we're a part of and we must relate to in a way that makes sense we have a human hierarchy like a boss and employee yeah yeah humans are at the top of the hierarchy and then everything else in the world is our employee literally that's like the problem with anthropocentrism is this idea of human hierarchy over nature and the use and abuse of it yeah it's our particular weird fixation on this hierarchy on on this idea that there's this master slave employee employer that there's always these hierarchical relationships that fixation has like truly messed up our relationship to the planet and the biosphere that we live on So like a hierarchical view of humans' relationship to nature might be we should use nature for our benefit, whereas a more reciprocal view of the role that humans play in nature could still be we can use nature for our benefit, but also we must allow ourselves to be of use and benefit to nature, to first nature outside of ourselves. If we aren't providing back sufficient benefit for the benefits that we are provided then the system's going to fall apart and we won't be able to continuously maintain that relationship as an ongoing support system for everything else that we want to do i sometimes worry when i'm like trying to express my thoughts on complementarity they're so I've got so many thoughts and I feel like it connects to so many things and it's just where I'm worried that I'm being too open-ended or not specific enough, but like really to take it to the extreme with that, like I remember being a teenager and first hearing Carl Sagan say, we are a way for the universe to know itself and how my teenage atheist mind was so blown by that. And what makes that a profound statement to me connects in with my concept of complementarity so profoundly and that like humanity needs to have a complementary relationship to the world around us we need to not just thrive ourselves but we need to mutually thrive we need to help other things thrive or it will lead to our own destruction and the difference and not hierarchy between humans and other things in the natural system that we're a part of because of our you know specialized language our complex social relations our use of technology our aspirations to be greater than we are 
our aspirations to carry ourselves with ethics and forethought. Our ability to retain information, technology, knowledge, culture, society through generations and like build this continuous legacy of all that we have known and have been in the past and like to build on that. And our aspiration to better ourselves and the world around us and our capacity to actually do that. It's unique in nature. Yeah. Like I love whales. I love whales as much as anyone, but they can't do what we do. Yeah. And we can't do what whales do, but they can't do what we do. Like there's many things whales do that we can't do. <laughs> yeah, we're a way for the universe to know itself. Whales are a way for the universe to be enormous things of fat that echolocate around the ocean. So we are a way for the universe to know itself. We're also a way for the universe to exercise ethics, a way for the universe to take responsibility, a way for the universe to love in a real sense. In the de- yeah. like, So we've got a special little place in nature and that distinction between difference and hierarchy becomes really like potent here because i think people sometimes go too far in the opposite direction where they're like oh humans aren't in charge of the universe humans think they're so great and all they do is destroy things and they're awful and this like sort of misanthropic envirocentric sort of we're a bad case of fleas and the earth's just got to shake us off yeah the problem isn't our lack of complementarity in our relationships to the other aspects of nature the problem is us itself we're corrupted and that logic is like the logic of insultarity it's the logic of not relating to each other it's a logic of not fixing problems that the people themselves are the problem rather than the roles and the relationships is the problem like when we look at the climate crisis the problem and now the climate crisis is absolutely caused by the rich you know the oil companies knew about this stuff decades before the rest of us and paid millions of dollars to try to confuse us into not taking action it's crimes against humanity but the people themselves, it's not like we just get rid of those people and the problem suddenly solved, like, oh, those were the evil people. It's the relationships, the power differences between oil executives and the rest of us and the, the motivations and systems that led to that that are the problem. So like when I think of misanthropy and my opposition to misanthropy, I think of it in a much, much broader sense than just hating humanity in general. But in times where we find ourselves hating human culprits rather than systems and roles is a type of misanthropy and it might be justified in some in people you know there's cathartic reasons to hate when you've been wronged and but at the same time i think the really rigorous analysis we're looking at the roles and institutions not the individuals too often people assume like for example a politician or a political party you don't like throw that politician out and it's going to solve the problem well guess what they just get a new guy to step in there and the whole system and institution stays the same it's like chop off the king's head and pick a new king. You know, close, sweetie, close. Yeah, you got to chop off the role of king. Yeah, and you have to institute a directly democratic commune of communes that pays the people according to need. 10,000 years of world peace make the rivers run with lemonade. Oh, it's nice to take a hike up this mountainside with you, my triplet brother. Yeah, it's our little tradition, two of three triplets, us two. Something to do just without Artemis, because... We spend so much time with Artemis, and he'll be around forever. Uh, so we thought. Now I'd give anything to have him on this hike with us. See him one more time? Yeah. Freak accident. What took Artemis out? I'm not saying, like, oh, we should have brought Artemis on every private hike with two out of three triplets. It was needed. I love him. I miss him. But he was a little much. Yeah, but then I see, you know, there's three shelves in the fridge. One of them's empty now. Three-bedroom condo with just two out of three triplets. So. Yeah. 
And I guess, I mean, we should just throw out that bicycle built for three. We're not going to be riding that again anytime soon. Also, when we order milkshakes now, only get two straws. Two straws. Or we're going to get a third straw and just In honor of, sit there. Yeah. yeah. Oh, look, baby deer. Ah, Here we are thinking about death and the miracle of life right before us. Keeps things in perspective anyway. That's beautiful. You know, every piece of the ecosystem plays its part. You know, the deer, the grass, the... Yeah, all working together produces the beauty of nature. Sort of like the beauty of me, you, and Artemis. Yeah, the triplets. The singular one from three is now two-thirds. When we put our heads together, we had the brain power of four or five brothers. We just oh, easily, yeah, easily. <sighs> I've had so much trouble concentrating in the reading group lately. Interesting stuff. I love the basics of library science, but keep seeing Artemis's face dancing before my eyes whenever I close them. You know, mm-hmm. Artemis's party trick of face dancing. I miss it too. It's like, of course, I want to learn about collection management, information systems, research methods, cataloging preservation, mm-hmm. information architecture and management, but like... Well, yeah, I mean, the socio-political revolutionary project to overthrow society as it is and replace it with a Yusufructian library society, you know, you have to study library science. But when your triplet brother dies, come on, that's fucked up to experience. Like, we can't be revolutionaries all the time. Sometimes we've got to go for a walk in nature, mourn our dead brother. No one's making us do this. We put this pressure on ourselves. Do you want to hop over that stream or find some way to see if we can go around? I think we can make it over. So yeah, getting my shoes wet. Worst case scenario, a little ankle wetness. Yeah, yep. Whoa, good jump. Oh, thank you. Okay, here I come. Oh, oh a little splash. That's okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm all right. A little wetter in the sock a bit, but can't jump as far as you. Oh, yeah, but you have lots of other great qualities oh come on drawing we work for to- example we work together you know sometimes you need to jump far sometimes you need to draw it so yeah are you all caught up on the on the reading for tomorrow night on the five laws of librarianship yeah i just skimmed it i was gonna like the refresh. founder of library science made these five laws right they're pretty good first one's books are for use you know we're not keeping these books in libraries just to keep them right and it's, it's no good having all this stuff if people can't access it and use it you know so you need libraries that are open accessible well cataloged available to everyone regardless of class race sex anything you know it's just open access to all books are for use for people to use and as a library socialist, I take that one step further and say, things are for use. Yeah, some more modern librarians have updated it to media are for use because of media richness in library environments now. But definitely, once you have libraries that archive and provide to people on a use of Fructian basis, not just media, but all kinds of items that people need, things are for use. Absolutely. And the second law, every person, his or her book, meaning, you know, anyone who comes to a library, they're looking for something. And the mission of the library is to have that book for them. So you want to have complete collections. You want to have broad collections that cover wide arrays of topics so that any person who comes in, it has their book or has their media or has what they need, you know, Hmm. to each according to their need. Exactly. Every person, his or her book, second law of librarianship. And then the third law is just kind of a corollary of that. Every book, its reader, meaning, you know, books have a place in the library, even if smaller demographics of people might choose to read it. You know, every book has its reader. And and in a library of the future, that meets all of people's needs. Even if only a few people might need something, you still want to have it in the library just in case so that people truly can 
get their needs met. It's interesting that duo, every book its reader and every reader its book, when metaphored up to society level, like library socialism, becomes very similar to each according to their ability to each according to their need. Yeah, absolutely. The kernel of socialisms in libraries from the start. Yeah, and then the fourth law is one of my favorite, save the time of the reader, and sometimes save the time of the reader and the librarian, just meaning you want the library system to be efficient, you want it to be easy to find what you need, get them in, get them out, or you know, if they want to leave or stay, whatever. It's a community space as well, of course, but efficiency needs to be part of managing massive collections of books, it needs to be part of managing a library society. Absolutely. I mean, a principle that us library socialists uphold is that ease of use and efficiency, user experience, are things that are beneficial. Convenience is good. The, Absolutely, the, yeah. It's amazing that we have these libraries in our pockets, the access and convenience of it. It's incredible. And, you know, we celebrate and uphold the convenience store. And time is a limited resource. Yeah, we need to do more from less. And then, of course, the fifth law, the library is a growing organism, just meaning, you know, you don't collect all of history's work and then it's done. There's always new stuff being written. There's always older works you don't have yet. There's always things that maybe the library doesn't need anymore, duplicate copies, non-notable works that might need to be culled, curated. It's a growing organism. It's shifting, changing with the needs of people. And of course, like media richness is part of that too. Libraries didn't used to have DVDs. That's such a cool fifth law of librarianship. The library is a growing organism. It's like sort of psychedelic. That's neat. That, like, that made the cut. The laws of librarianship, according to the founder of Library Science. The library is a growing organism. Yeah, it's a recognition that, you know, a library, it's more than just a collection of books. It's the gestalt of all of the books there and the people there and the reference materials. It, it creates something more than the sum of its parts. The library itself is a force to be reckoned with, an organism in itself that grows and changes. And, and the library society has to be a growing organism itself. You know, we're never going to have a perfect revolution where all of a sudden everything is just like a perfectly ticking clock for the rest of history. No, of course not. There's forces and counterforces and there's growth and curation and development and change and and we acknowledge that, you know, we acknowledge that there isn't an end in sight. There's just new beginnings. There's always just new beginnings over and over again. That's something that we embrace. That's that's library socialism in a nutshell. Yeah, absolutely. And it's rooted in the history of library thought. Like these laws were published in 1931 almost a hundred years ago, the seeds of a future library society being planted. Oh, but yeah, just all this talking about libraries, cohesive whole, just reminds me that our whole, or the whole three triplets of us, is no longer cohesive. <sighs> yeah, Artemis was a hell of a guy. Needless to say, our band is not going to be the same without a guitarist. I play drums, you sing, where's the riffs going to come from? Yeah, this sounds like it might be challenging and artistic music. Yeah, and we were never trying to make challenging music. Just no, general, like, fun music for yeah, what people to dance to. Yeah, what you'd expect from three triplets in a band, having fun. Yeah, let's uh, have a seat under this tree. Sun's probably going to be setting. I feel like this might be a really good spot to watch. Hell yeah. Don't get between me and a beautiful sunset. trying to talk about library socialism here without talking about the meaning of life. I wanted to sidestep talking about the meaning of life here, but I just can't. Of these three component parts of library socialism, complementarity is the piece that 
touches closest to the meaning of life. When we're talking about our relationship to nature as a species and our relationships to each other. Yeah, fostering relationships that work between ourselves and the people that you relate to, the social systems and environmental systems that you are embedded in. The meaning of life is always going to be about that relationship between you and what else the the else the elseness and complementary like it's just saying we want those relationships to work and to not not work that's what people find meaningful in their everyday lives is creating things that work and produce positive outcomes like we can say the meaning of life is what you make of it or like people choose or just f happen to find different things meaningful, but producing positive workable outcomes between relating parts between yourself and things that you're relating to. Like I can't think of anything that anyone would say they found meaningful that you can't describe as an instance of that. So we like face an environmental crisis and all these overlapping social crises. And I, I just don't see any way that we can do it that isn't going to engage in some form of like biomimicry on the technological side and being kind to each other on the social side. And complementarity can broadly touch on both of those concepts and many other concepts in a really useful and fruitful, interesting way. I'll give the example of death. Like death is bad. Death is usually like pretty bad to be involved with. Like if someone that you care about dies, that's horrible. If you die and you don't want to, that's horrible. It's a painful experience. Loss is painful. It's negative, And it's something like that ideally in most circumstances you want to try to avoid. Although it happens, it's part of the world. We come from a system of evolution, an iterative, natural sequence of individuals, our genetic materials passed down for millions of years in ways that we can't imagine. And it's impossible that all of our ancestors would stay alive in some sort of weird, pure retention system. We're just like, there's my dad, he's older than me, my grandpa, even older than him, my great-great-grandpa, even older than him, and so on and so on, all the way back to single-celled organisms. The world doesn't work that way. The, the world that we've found ourselves in doesn't work that way. So our very existence, our very life is owed to this heritage of death. Like our very, our existence is owed to the principles of the system that will kill us. And in that sense, there's sort of a philosophical complementarity between life and death. The things that we love about life are caused by death. Complementarity implies limits to what is acceptable and what produces positive outcomes. And one of the most fundamental limits we have on our existences is death, is that we all will die. Like, it's really hard to accept that. It, it can be really difficult, but it's, I, I, think it's, I think it's important to highlight this one specifically because of how extreme it is and because how it highlights that like complementarity doesn't necessarily mean everything holding hands and singing kumbaya together. Like lions are holding hands with rabbits and humans holding hands with the lion on the other side and we all got our ukuleles out. Life without capitalism. Yeah, it's like, this is a complementary society, and it's all good all the time. Everyone's only always nice to each other. Nothing ever dies. Part of complementarity is pain and loss. 
complementarity is like the generative positive emergent outcomes of complex systems through non-hierarchical difference. And in the case of death, there are complex positive outcomes generated through the interplay between life and death. Although like death is a social tragedy, the overall outcome of it in the long term is an incredible amount of diversity and wonder and unpredictability and lack of fate. An uncalcified, open, thriving world is the result fundamentally of death among other things yeah i mean like i'm open to the idea of overcoming death or attempting to overcoming death but like it creates urgency like the fact that you know you're gonna die especially just like the more you age and you notice those numbers always go up and they never go down (laughs) and there's fewer of them left than there were before in front of you always yeah it creates this sense of like oh if i want to do something while i'm here i have to actually do it so i was recently a campaign manager for the ndp in canada and we lost we came in second place by about 1500 votes first time ever running an election where we totally lost like where we just there was no victory at the end for you first time you were yeah first time that i was in an election where i was a serious part of making it happen my goal my singular goal was to elect someone and make them win and then election day came the ballots were counted we were short of winning we lost yeah there's no way around it there's no silver lining second place we did better than last time blah 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 it's like I went home at the end of the day having not won, having not elected the person, yeah. which was my goal. And my goal wasn't, oh, we're going to get closer than last time. My goal was straight up, get this motherfucker in. And I lost. And so obviously I thought a lot about that. I wasn't just like, oh, whoops. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Oop, meant to win. Thought a lot about it. And so one of the things that I thought about was the benefits of losing. Now, like, I wanted to win. But what could I get from it is I've got more experience than I had before. I'd never lost an election before. Now I have. And I got all the experience that came through running that election the entire time. The pain of loss was always a part of the joy of the victories that I'd had before. I just never got to experience it myself. So this is my third election. Two times we won. The second time we more than half won. There was multiple candidates. It was municipal. Third time I lost. But every time I won... There were four other campaign offices that lost nearby. And I didn't think for a second about yeah, what it felt yeah, like to them. Not a second thought. <laughs> <laughs> and I wouldn't. I wouldn't be like, oh, I'm about to win this election. Oh, but what about those guys? Oh, better lose. Like, no, it's just part of the system. It's part of this broken system, honestly. And I think the system needs to be overthrown and redesigned in our lifetime. That understanding of the way that my victory was connected to people's past losses and that my loss was connected to someone else's victory and stuff like that. This sort of stuff helped me sort of center my thoughts on the fact that no, you don't just automatically win every time. And sometimes you can work really, really hard for a really, really long time and like put your heart and soul into something and try your best and sacrifice so much to make it happen and then still lose. This sort of helped me think about this because we were thinking, I was already thinking about complementarity because of this being around the corner loss is always painful and like the loss of a human life is like the the ultimate loss that most people can imagine but like losing an election is similar in a lot of ways like you're mourning the loss of this thing that you wanted or that you were expecting or hoping for you were hoping for mp sven robinson in office (laughs) 
<laughs> but what you got is MP t- Terry Beach. What's his name? I got it right. Damn. Liberal Terry Beach. And like, <laughs> so there's, there's this distance between what was desired and what is, and the loss of the thing that was desired is always painful. And like in this instance, it's probably it's like, it's a bad outcome morally broadly, at least from our perspective, I'm sure the liberals disagree. Well, they're not going to meet the climate change targets so they can eat my ass. And like everything about how we need to change the system and like even first pass the post and the way winners and losers in that specific system are decided is bad. And the pain of loss is something that we all need to be comfortable with because it's part of all systems. Like we can't hold on to everything forever. We can't hold on to anything forever because we die but like as a collective we do our best to hold on to some things forever and that's part of like what the library project is about it's not it's not just the history of human knowledge it's the history of human knowledge that's been written down that's been attempted to be preserved over time and that that attempt to preserve is like this human impulse against loss this human impulse to like prevent loss through the generations to retain but retaining information retaining knowledge what can be retained cross generations is made meaningful by a selection process and like curation and keeping what is most necessary and what is most useful and allowing what else there is to be gone, to disappear, to be lost. You can't have one without the other. You can't have a body of knowledge without pruning and without like cultivating. So there's always this like interplay between this desire we have to prevent the pain of loss, this desire we have to retain, and and the fact of loss, the fact that time causes degradation, that time brings about loss. It brings about loss through death. It brings about loss because your book will eventually disintegrate. The like paper doesn't last forever. Even with the best of like maintaining it in like temperature controlled, humidity controlled environments, like we can keep things for a really long time. But like nothing lasts forever loss is inherent to the universe it's part of the march of time and libraries are just like this beautiful stand against that this beautiful legacy of human knowledge and human capacity stored cataloged and interacted with in a way so that like people can interface with it and make use of it I don't know. It's weird. it's hard to explain what I'm saying, but like it's a stand against loss in a sense. But at the same time, it's dependent on loss. It's dependent on the loss of curation and on the loss of what isn't deemed worth the effort required to maintain to retain something forever. Yeah, there's some like naive part of me that wants to just retain everything and be like, the library should have every book possible and just keep on piling them in and just get the library bigger and bigger forever until everything, and I mean everything forever, all the new things that are going to come out, just keep on growing that library. Never decrease, only increase, only retention, never loss. But it doesn't make any sense. It'll end up defeating the purpose. I think it's a good thing to work with physics. So it's like we need to understand the system and then work within it to the best that we can to actualize the most ethical outcomes that we can imagine. That's the point of life. That's the purpose of life, obviously.
Welcome to Keyboard Warrior Radio Theater. Hey, I'm a library socialist too. Ew. Wait, don't tell me. Yuck. Library socialism Sean Villiers thought? Splitters, turncoats, that is just as bad as fascism. Seeing you show up in the comments on my posts makes me want to vomit into the trash can. Aaron Moritz took a beautiful idea developed, let's be honest, mostly by Sean, and completely destroyed it so thoroughly that you have to assume it was on purpose and that he was a seditious evil man. You people are just part of a cult. It's the cult of Sean Thought. We're free thinkers over here, and you guys are just cultoids. You're just like humanoid people made of shadow energy. You barely can form a coherent thought. I believe there's a famous quote that says, he who calls someone else in a cult is the one who's actually in a cult. So therefore, it seems that you are the one who's in a cult. Aaron Moritz is the deviation. If you weren't a completely brain-dead, worm-brain-infested brain idiot who can't rub two thoughts together, maybe you would see the truth. But as it is now, it seems like you're just sitting in a bathtub with a rubber chicken slamming it against the keyboard, pressing enter on whatever it happens to type. Okay, dot dot dot. I guess we threw all pretense of good faith out the window. I won't waste any more of your time. I thought I might come here for an open-minded discussion of differing factions of library socialists. Instead, I've gotten nothing but abuse and gaslighting. I get strength from the knowledge I'm right, and I get strength from the knowledge that you're a fool. And with that, I block you. You contradict yourself, sir. For if you were strong, you would not block. Adieu. And so, that day, a playwright, just coming down from the high of releasing their second off-Broadway initiative, happened to stumble upon that very comment section. This playwright was so taken by the mastery of the arguments, the strength of ideas, and the tension of great minds, that that playwright adapted that comment section into an award-winning off-Broadway play, The Keyboard Warriors, which toured across the country, becoming one of the top performing plays in American history. We now go to the last show on the tour, where two actors are typing on their keyboards and the text is appearing up in a projector behind them. They don't speak, acting out that famous scene. director of the keyboard warriors yes thank you thank you oh geez that's the spotlight on me and the audience i'll never get used to it but um as you all know this is the last stop on the tour this play we started on broadway went on tour and a lot of people have been asking me what's next where's the show gonna play next i have an announcement regarding that which is it won't it won't be playing next this was the last performance ever that will ever be done. I own the rights to the play and I will use every lawyer at my disposal to prevent anyone from ever getting access to it now or in the future. I believe we had a perfect run. Anything beyond this would just be overstaying our welcome. I want to make room for new plays, for innovative plays like this one. Thank you again. I know you're all disappointed. You won't be able to see it again, but... Uh, all good things must come to an end. Thank you. 
Maybe I'll just pop out the tape. That's the end of the movie. It's just credits after that. Oh, wow. Not all of it holds up, but... It's... Was there ever any sequels to that movie? Or maybe no, a no. reboot? Or... No, no. That little monologue is the end of Keyboard Warrior. It's over. They didn't do any after that. Oh, why? There's something to be said about renewal. Yeah, like rebooting an old thing and doing it over again. Or just sometimes it's just retiring something. And that loss, I mean, we can mourn the loss of the potential. The thought of, oh, there could be a sequel. What would it be like? Maybe enticing, but is it really necessary? Maybe it's good to close the book on some things, experience that loss, feel that loss. Now I just want more. It's like when you read through a big book series, you get to know all these characters, and at the end you're like, oh, my friends. Yeah, like, they didn't gone. technically die, but they don't exist anymore. It's like, oh, last page of Animorphs. Whoa, damn, all my friends are dead. There's no more stories about them. All right, and let's play a tape popping out sound effect and pretend that we're popping out a tape as we often do on the show. So that tape that we were pretending to listen to but we were actually making was characters in a universe where a Keyboard Warrior movie was made discussing whether or not that was the end of the Keyboard Warrior franchise or if it came back again in their universe. Yeah, and really that ending of the Keyboard Warrior sketch we just did grew out of our desire to kind of do something really special with this particular Keyboard Warrior sketch, something we hadn't done before. And the reason that we wanted to do that was because, well, oh, it's, it's hard to even say it, but... We're retiring Keyboard Warrior. That is the last Keyboard Warrior sketch. It's the last sketch. Yeah. I mean, we've been doing Keyboard Warrior basically longest of all, right from the beginning. Still yeah. use that same intro music. It's like several Facebook sounds yeah. ago yeah, at this point. definitely. People love the Keyboard Warrior sketch, but, you know, maybe sometimes we rely on it a bit too much. You know, we just want to open things up and do something different. I mean, there's only so many endings. There's, they disagree to the end, it's unreasonable. One of them unreasonably starts agreeing or they come to a synthesis of some kind or something weird happens like they get married or one of them dies or a third person joins the conversation. But yeah. I mean, done that. But <sighs> we want to send it off right. We've invited everyone in Wrongtown to come to a funeral to mark the retirement of a good one, yeah. a good part of the family. <laughs> Why them? Why not synchronicity book club? <laughs> At least it wasn't dad and son. Did you see the body? It looks unreal. Yeah, they didn't do the best job. It's like a painted doll. <laughs> Open caskets, weird. Well, that's your opinion. Uh, uh, da- dad, dad and, and son, son, do you want to get up to say a few words, words about Keyboard Warrior? I always really liked the keyboard warriors because of the typing sound effects that go clickety-clack. And then people got mad at each other, and it's funny. I'd watch this sketch with my son. He asked me, what does libertarian socialist mean? I'm like, well, okay, let's start at the beginning, son. Great educational tool, fun sounds, as my son mentioned. Will be missed. Definitely part of the Seriously Wrong family, and to retire a sketch like this, it's too soon. Anybody else want to call? Um, stopping the tape and popping it out? No, I'm too embarrassed to say anything. Recently resigned in disgrace, Peach of Chalif. Haven't seen you in a while. Yes, I'd like to say thank you to Keyboard Warrior Radio Theater for always holding it down in Wrongtown for all of us. I'm not afraid to speak the truth, not afraid to push boundaries. I also want to apologize to everyone here for some of my behavior tonight at this funeral. I will be resigning as a eulogist. The things that I did today were inexcusable, and I will be stepping down. Thank you. I won't be taking any questions. 
Uh, if you don't mind, I'm gonna say a few words. So just uh, the music here. Today on a confirmation bias news special report from the retirement funeral of Keyboard Warrior Theater, Keyboard Warrior was a great sketch. A sketch that was beloved by many, liked by even more, and hated by very few. This just in, Keyboard Warrior was a penetrating look into the strange new realm of internet arguments and online debates. And this just in, Keyboard Warrior was a fundamentally human project, putting all of our collective foibles, disagreements, and sorry, I'm just breaking up a little bit. Um, foibles, disagreements on display. You know, I usually don't break down like this reading the news, but no, just play me out, just play the song. <clears throat> On behalf of all the residents of Wrongtown, let me just say, as the one good politician, this was a treasured sketch. This was a treasured sketch. And to know that it, no matter what happens, no keyboard warrior will ever happen again from here on out, forever. It just, it hurts to sit with that knowledge. Let's just have a moment of silence to think about what it means for something to die. There's something to be said for the impermanent, the ephemeral, the had and lost. Maybe the Library of Alexandria is more beautiful as a metaphor for the loss of information than what we would have actually gotten from it. Maybe it was just mostly bullshit anyways. More commentaries on Plato. I haven't read any of the <laughs> generations of commentaries on Plato that already exist. Yeah, a good part of the Library of Alexandria is shit that we already have copies of anyways. But since it's gone, we can be like, oh, wow, is this amazing thing? We don't know. And then the rest of it was mostly like comment section stuff. <laughs> I don't know, like, I can mourn the Library of Alexandria with the best of them, but isn't there some sort of meaning in its loss? Yeah, everyone knows about it, and even people who don't visit any libraries and don't care about libraries can be like, oh, it's so sad that that was, li it's become this, like, cultural touchstone to, like, talk about loss of information. Maybe that's more valuable than it would have been, but, like, just to give some other examples of times when that instinct to prevent loss, the like the graspingness becomes a problem, like hoarders, where these people are so afraid of losing anything that they, they might need later that they like, fill their spaces with all this junk, like stacks and stacks of newspapers from decades ago that... Oh, you just I just want to keep it just in case. It's it's this furtive desire to keep as much as possible and to not let anything go in service of you might need it someday. You've turned your living space into something that's completely something It runs contrary to a life worth living. Yeah. To it, have all of your free space filled up with newspapers in case you need them. And it runs contrary to like enjoying a concert to spend the entire time watching it through your cell phone screen because you're like 
desperately trying to save this moment forever so you can experience it again later and then you don't even end up really experiencing it as well as you could in the moment because you're focused on this desire to retain something that actually can't be retained at least not very well with a cell phone video maybe if you had like a 360 degree camera and surround sound to record it for like a virtual reality thing or something maybe like that I don't that's know. a fine but, idea but you imagine everyone in the audience brings out their 360 <laughs> surround <laughs> sound cameras and holds them up uh you could just have one guy do that like <laughs> yeah someone who's getting paid to do it but yeah it's like oh man you know i'm a fireworks head i love fireworks i check out fireworks every chance i get but <laughs> when i'm at the fireworks it's not very often i'm joking i don't really care about them but occasionally you get the opportunity like oh there's fireworks and there's people here watching fireworks let's do yeah. it i'm not yeah. like oh i'm better than this it's not my favorite thing in the world but <laughs> sean got made fun of for liking fireworks too much <laughs> He's i'm just trying to clarify where i stand on the fireworks question it's fine and i'm not it's not that i don't watch it it's just that it rarely blows me away it's because i was about to say anytime i'm watching fireworks it sounds like oh you fireworks <laughs> chaser um <laughs> people immediately think <laughs> no i see people with their little digital cameras or like smartphones recording fireworks and if you ever watch video of fireworks it's such a good metaphor for this over retention bullshit yeah because video of fireworks is so much just exponentially a whole level dumber and worse than regular fireworks which are already just like pretty good if you're an adult you know yeah i mean like it's cool it's really big like the thing that's awesome about fireworks is the whole sky is this canvas for these like big brilliant lights it's awe-inspiring like especially if you're a kid and you haven't seen it very much or before but even as an adult it's this big thing like the sky is huge and it opens up to the universe and like just against that background you're having these colorful explosions of light it's very pretty people put effort into the shows but almost none of that comes through on a cell phone camera video. Yeah, like, so you've taken your experience of this thing, you've degraded it by 40% to record the video of it, to have a copy that's only worth 10% of what it was in the first place. You're losing like, 30%. 1%. It's like, <laughs> dude, think of how many times you go see fireworks, but then think about how many times you've been like, all right, everyone. I'm going to go on YouTube and watch some fireworks videos. Or like, let's, let's sit down as a family around the large screen TV and watch our old videos of fireworks that we kept. <laughs> Wow, ooh, it's pretty. It's just like it's just bad. It's just it's just a bad experience that nobody wants. But like you think you want it in the moment. And so yeah, that overretention I think is a real silly thing to do. Anxiously xeroxing your experiences as they happen. Yeah. For no purpose except the most vague promise of somehow keeping it yeah you can't keep experiences you can take a couple pictures you'll have a memory of the experience sure but like experiences aren't something that can be bottled up and stored and then taken out again and had again you have to have them while you're having them they are inherently fleeting inherently ephemeral and like you just have to embrace that i mean you don't have to i'm gonna make you but it's better another place that we get tension on this over attention thing is like with the internet age that we're in now conversations that we've had that in any other time period that would be ephemeral become part of the record 
yeah. which can be really damaging. It can be damaging to people's lives. The fact that this stuff is sort of like Facebook or Google databases, private conversations, say like a fight with your lover from 2011. I'm just trying to trigger someone specifically. <laughs> <laughs> like Ooh. maybe you said something really, really like mean about your mom to your brother over email in 2005. <laughs> Who knows? There's a million different things that should be ephemeral, but which aren't in the internet age. Yeah. The NSA has these huge databases of all these communications from all these different people, copies of text conversations and all this stuff. I'm sure they've got it in some form. They claim that they only look at it in patterns. They don't look at the individual pieces. In a sense, it's like the Library of Alexandria. It's one of the biggest compendiums of information on humans that have ever existed. You could treat it like a database for historical research in the future, and it would no doubt be really, really useful to historians to piece some stuff together and piece some detail. Yeah, or even just like human psychologists, like to take a look at one person having a crisis and then like what did they post publicly on their social media streams? What did they say in private conversation? Like you could learn a lot about how humans are when they feel like they're not being watched but actually are being watched and recorded <laughs> in perpetuity like yeah it's a, it's a fucking treasure trove of information that could give out a lot of benefits to like have and study and analyze to to add to the library of human history yeah but at the same time it should probably all be deleted yeah for the purposes of like human liberation. Sometimes it's best that certain things are just gone. When I was younger, we mostly used MSN Messenger to chat with each other. So I don't have any of those conversations. I don't know if that's stored somewhere or if that's gone. It's gone to me. Like I can't get it. And part of me like wishes I could because it'd just be like, oh, just check it out. Like, what was I saying when I was in like seventh grade when I was 13 on the internet chatting with my friends but then part of me is like eh, yeah maybe it's for the best that that's gone I mean it would be interesting it's been long enough now that I wouldn't be like upset by it but it's also like me at 12 13 is like not me at my best no so for no. it to exist means for people to find it potentially and it's just like I don't know like there's so many interactions I've had in my life that are ephemeral that I'm really glad were ephemeral there's not something specific and big I'm thinking of but just as a general rule like as I grew up and became who I am today there were a lot of parts that happened off the record and I'm glad about that and I think I'll, I think I'll, all of us are glad like just an extreme example to just I think we're all in the same boat here so the part of your brain that wants to catalog and keep everything and just bring that forward and then think Okay, for whatever reason, there is a complete record of every time you've masturbated. <laughs> Should it be retained or deleted? <laughs> it's not a hard choice for me. Ah, oh, but what if you need it? What if you need it later? Mm. Yeah, okay, Just I'll to keep check. It. Oh, what if I used to masturbate differently than I do now? I can always check. It's there. Look, I'm going to keep it until I have a chance to go through it and separate the good <laughs> from bad. So I'm just going to hold on to it till then. Because some I want to keep. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, I'm fine with that not existing. Be a lot of times, a lot of videos. Yeah. Embarrassing. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> Garion, did grandfather ever tell you about the Great War when the Library Socialist Army overthrew the privatizing profiteers who were sending Wrongtopia into a dark age? 
The year was 2119. The stationaries had taken over all of the libraries and kept out the nomads, but we banded together in cells. The first step was narrative work. We spread the word about the change that we wanted to make and the fight that we wanted to bring back. Then we used a mixed strategy of creating the institutions that we wanted to exist and using the resources of existing institutions to eventually overthrow the social order and bring about full, usufruct-based library society that pays everyone according to need, meeting their irreducible minimum. We use these different tactics in a complementary way and uh, overthrew it. Is that when they changed the slogan of the Wrongtopia to more with less? Yes, more with less. That's exactly the war. Yeah, that's the one. The more oh, with yeah. less. And that was also the start of the retention project, to record every aspect of, or as the slogan goes, Every moment, moment from, from every, every angle. angle. When we perfected library socialism, we also perfected total surveillance. Yeah, otherwise your library will have massive holes in it. Yeah, and what if you need that? Yeah. Let me get my notebook. I want to record just some handwritten notes on reflections of this conversation. Oh, yeah, I will too. Every moment from every angle, every you know. Angle. Grandpa told me story, and we said the motto. Because, I mean, if you're going through the logbook and one note is 2.30 and the next note is 2.45. Uh, yeah, what happened? The inspectors wouldn't probably go, huh? What happened then? Yeah, and then they'd place us under solitary surveillance, right? That's right, yeah. Placed under camera completely by yourself. Because then at least we'll know what they're doing. The first job of every citizen is to complete the record. And I've done that my whole life, my whole long life. The amount of information in history that was never recorded is the greatest tragedy of all. And I can see that you've retained some of the great family features. You always said our family has the hearts of archivists. All right, the hearts of archivists. And I'll just make a note, it was touching. And then Grandpa made some notes. I made a note about his notes. Okay, I think we're up to date. Oh, I just had some private thoughts I should record. One second. Okay, I'm going to head to the washroom. Okay, uh, well, remember to turn on the camera in there when you go in. Oh, yeah, of course. What if we need it? Recording yourself go to the bathroom is the building blocks of library socialism. Grandpa, did you know we've almost reached 18 trillion records of humans using the washroom? Oh, that brings a tear to my eye. Okay, you record that tear and I'll be right back. Had a tear come to my eye as I imagined 17 trillion perfect records lined up in rows of clean millions. The collection complete. Its beauty immaculate. The library. The archive. Growing. Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is proudly brought to you by Perfect Compliment, a fun new dating app for people who are looking for someone who matches them perfectly. That's right, you heard me, perfectly. Hold on a minute, are you telling me if I sign up to your website, you will find me a partner who compliments me perfectly in every aspect of myself and their self? Like two perfectly cut puzzle pieces snapping into place, or two gears turning into one another perfectly, teeth matching as we live our lives without arguments, disagreements, complaints, friction, or negative emotions of any kind? The perfect ticking clock forever with no challenges? Yes, that is exactly what Perfect Compliment promises. Now, have you ever heard that old nursery rhyme, Jack Spratt? This nursery rhyme was the founding ethos of our company. Jack Spratt could eat no fat. His wife could eat no lean. 
but together both, they licked the platter clean. Now imagine this, you hate doing the dishes, she hates cleaning the toilet. Our experts will match you up with someone who will do the cleaning you don't like, and you can do the cleaning that they don't like. What if I don't like cleaning at all? Then we'll find you someone who likes cleaning always. What if more than half of the world's population doesn't like doing more than half of the cleaning in total? Then you can get to the top of the list by paying for perfect compliment gold. Wow, I'm gonna head to my computer right now and sign up, but wait a minute, you have to tell me. How does this work? How do you do it? We're more than happy to answer that question. I'm more than happy to listen to your answer. When you sign up for the first time, there is a terms and conditions. Pretty standard. Giving perfect compliment the right to legally request any and all records that relate to you, your life, and your identity from any private or public body. So after we do that, we build a pretty detailed profile of who you are as a person, and we use complicated data analytics to compare you to millions and millions of people that we have access to the profile for from our other products and services. Now, now everyone's in the dating app, but all of these human profiles are used to create general trends, which we then apply to you and others and look for optimal pairings. So does that mean you'll have access to all of my private messages on all social media platforms? Yes. Does that mean you'll have access to any recordings of calls I've made that are in government NSA databases? Uh, yes. Does that mean that you'll have access to any time my face is shown up on surveillance footage anywhere in the world? based on facial recognition algorithms that have picked me out from everything that ever existed? Yeah, but I, I should stress, this is a pretty standard clause in terms of services in the year 2035. We're not different in asking for this. Well, it makes sense that you would need all that in order to know enough about me to match me so perfectly, so that checks out and makes sense how your service works now. That's what I like to hear. Sign up today for Perfect Compliment. If anyone's going to have access to all my private data, it might as well be someone who's going to match me with my perfect romantic partner forever. And it's a pretty standard contract these days. Please note that Perfect Compliment is unable to purge old records under the Emergency Retention Act of 2031. All records, public or private, are held indefinitely. Yeah, it's our time. We've got nothing to Now it's time for the Q&A, where people hold library socialism to account, and we put all doubts to rest through vigorous answers to tough questions. Can't wait. I'm just, uh, <laughs> clap my hands and rub them together in anticipation. Do you got the first question? Yes, here it is. I hate traditionalists. I think traditionalists cause all the most horrific things in the world. You know what we'd have without tradition? Utopia. And I think this library socialism stuff, I get some weird traditionalist vibes. First of all, I think you just need to check your premises here, bud. The idea that we're going to set up a dichotomy between novelty and tradition and then just like pick one side bizarre thinking. Obviously, we have no choice but to embrace a hybrid between novelty and tradition. But I mean, what specifically we have to do with tradition is see what is the liberatory potential of the past and try to actualize that potentiality. So pull on history, not in explicit like Xeroxing terms, like reproductive terms, but use history as a piece of the puzzle in, in building new combinations to create an ever better society. Tradition has an important part in library socialism, but it's a remix culture. We don't just follow 
tradition from on high, but we certainly acknowledge its existence and, and respect it. And there's some traditions are better than others. Absolutely. And novelty comes from tradition, like can only exist in reference to something else that isn't novel. The idea that our current ideas or the newest ideas are inherently always the best ideas and we must destroy traditions from the past completely that don't align with our values has led to some really horrifying things in the past, like cultural genocides or things like residential schools where First Nations peoples in North America were forced to go to schools run by white people that specifically meant to quash their history and traditions. Obviously, many traditions are problematic. Novelty is great. Novelty is part of the equation, but pure novelty with nothing as a reference point or a basis to start from isn't even a coherent concept that makes sense, unfortunately, for you and your question. And I mean, I think it's just worth noting before we move on here that a true and full novelty that isn't just a novel combination of pre-existing characteristics has got to be extremely rare. You know, like we're talking about the creation of a new mineral or something you know like most of the time it's just a novel combination of already existing repetitions from the past and i think tradition can be a source of wisdom both by listening directly and learning from the lessons of it so i just absolutely disagree and reject this incoherent criticism about the synthesis of novelty and traditionalism that underpins library socialism and i won't have it can you please read the next question All right. It says here earlier, Sean, you seemed to imply the only or main reason to keep disabled people alive is because they're useful. Unlike the Nazis you disagreed with, who said they weren't useful, which was why they killed them. Are you saying that the only reason to keep disabled people alive is because you find them useful? Hey, thanks for the hard to answer bad faith question. No. Okay. So let me just be clear. The reason that we should keep all human beings alive rather than kill them in a genocidal way is because we have a responsibility to other human beings as human beings to help meet their basic needs, and that includes their human rights. The human dignity is the the center of this argument. The system works better when everyone is kept alive. That's what makes a coherent, wonderful society. And it just happens to be true that the Nazis were wrong about disabled people never being useful. Yeah, it just that underscores the collective ideological poverty of the Nazis. They're just factually wrong on so many things. It's incredible. Yeah, so don't confuse a mere statement of the facts. We should keep disabled people alive. Disabled people are useful to saying that the first one is dependent on the second one. That's not that's not what anyone's saying. But it is absolutely true that it is good for us as a species to give everyone the potential to thrive within their context. Society is better for everyone when we all are able to express ourselves, be supported in having our basic needs met and being able to thrive. That's the core complementarity argument there. And also key to this is the idea of difference rather than hierarchy. People with differing abilities it's different. It's not a hierarchy. You know, like it might be true that most people are born with 10 fingers, but if someone loses a finger in an accident, it doesn't make them any less human. And everyone's welcome to have a seat at the table and contribute and thrive. And if we let everyone do that, we're going to have the best results. That's the point. Yeah. Next question. It's unclear to me, wrong boys, you seem to be contradicting yourselves. Do you support the permanent or the ephemeral? Pick a side. Yikes. What's with all of these? 
poor assumptions in the questions. It's like picking a side between left and right. Sometimes you need to turn left, sometimes you need to turn right. And the two exist only in relation to each other. Absolutely. And like permanence, true permanence is a fantasy. It's maybe potentially possible, but it would require work forever done by a succession of conscious agents in perpetuity. And so it's not really a real thing. What we talk about with permanence is more staving off of degradation, which is inherent to time. So there's a need for an interplay between both degrees of permanence and degrees of ephemerality. They're both part of a coherent singular worldview on information. So next question. There has been a major divide recently on the left. On one side, fully automated luxury communism. Its opposite, degrowth. Where does library socialism stand? You know what? I like this question. The answer is library socialism is fully automated luxury degrowth. It's doing more with less. The principle of usufruct and the principle of complementarity help generate the irreducible minimum. Usufruct is generative of more instances of use cases for objects. Complementarity's aspect of like synergy where you can get more than the sum of its parts means that you're getting more from less also. So when you're combining these things together, you've got something really powerful where you can actually decrease carbon emissions, decrease the amount of carbon output and garbage output, decrease the amount of pollution while giving people a higher level of access than they've ever had in history to what they need and desire. It's both. Yeah, I mean, that really just covers it. What else can you say? (laughs) (laughs) Next question. So, does complementarity just mean that whenever anything good happens, that's complementarity? Seems like a tautology. Thanks for your question. Quick answer, no, it's not a tautology. It's not just like anytime something good happens, you're like, that's complementarity. But anytime something good happens, you can look for the complementary relationships in these complex systems that allowed this good thing to happen. And you'll usually be able to find them. You'll want to look for relationships that are reciprocal and sustainable, two sort of elements of a complementary relationship. When you have non-hierarchically different elements coming together in ways that are reciprocal and sustainable, that's complementarity, and that will produce good outcomes. So this analytical lens of complementarity is also tied to an ethics of complementarity, which is sort of like the basis of anarchism, non-hierarchy. And in social ecology, in particular, a description of the way that humanity's relationship fits into nature. We've inherited a historical legacy of domination where nature was treated as something that humans could conquer, were above The entire world is just one big slave for us to enslave, and humanity's fate is to enslave the stars. Right, so yeah, the ethic is like, we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't enslave the planet, we shouldn't enslave the stars, we should form sustainable, reciprocal relationships with these things. Yeah, and that human beings should have a relationship with other living beings and nature as it exists that's complementary, where our unique features contribute to making the universe a more lush and beautiful place that human beings could use our capacities to produce a richer and more creative developmental whole, not as a dominant species, but as a supportive one. And I also just find that this ethic and lens of analysis inspire all of these creative, so many different things that I just feel like relate to this dynamic and this generative capacity of non-hierarchy is so fascinating and awesome and so well encapsulated in the library where the library is more than some of its parts 
not just because it's a one-stop place to do any sort of generalized learning, but also in the way that it functions on usufruct means that people have access to what they need rather than ownership. And it's just like such a complimentary process to be like, oh, you get this book while you're reading it. It's basic, but it's so profound at the same time. Like the thing that needs to be somewhere gets there. And when it's no longer needed to be there, it is put somewhere else where it's needed. The only reason this blows my mind is because I live under this regime of private property and ownership. (laughs) Like, wow, it's crazy. Like, when you're not riding the bike, someone else can ride the bike. And then it's like there's two bikes. It's like a bike comes out of nowhere. Yeah, and forming these complementary relationships where you use it when I'm not using it makes the whole process more sustainable because we end up using less things. And that makes our relationship to nature more supportive and reciprocal which is a good outcome, one of the many good outcomes that complementarity fosters. And so through these forces of complementarity, usufruct, and the irreducible minimum, libraries hold the secret to tackling both the crises of inequality and climate change using the same principles. It's it's not just any good thing, it's that. It's like all these sort of psychedelically connected related concepts that have to do with the generative functions of non-hierarchical relationships and conceptions. So that should clear that up. And we'll move on to the next question. Hey, wrong boys. So you say that you want absolutely everything to function like a library. But what about food? Can we share food on a usufructian basis? Do I have to return my food when I'm done with it? Do you guys want me to return my poop? Ha 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 ha. Gotcha. Great question. Colorful question. It's questions like that that really brighten up a dull show. Yeah, and I can tell you had fun writing it, too, because you wrote ha 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 in the question. Yeah, you have to be laughing pretty hard. Yeah. The answer to your question is, what are you going to do with your poo if not give it to us? You have some sort of special room in your house where you keep poo? Or are you already engaged in the process of returning your poo to the government? Yeah, this question definitely seemed a bit bizarre to me because I was like, we already return our poop. I mean, unless you don't. I saw that episode of Hoarders. keeping guy? There was buckets all over the place. It was a nightmare. Daily reminder, (laughs) don't keep your poo. Unreturned poo can be a health hazard. So we really want people to return their poo through plumbing tubes already installed in every building that gets kind of returned to the system more broadly, is treated. Uh, Maybe we can find uses for it in nature. Return it to the ecosystem in a way where it's a useful input into another process. We want that waste to equal food. Waste equals food is a fundamental building block of library socialism, so it makes sense. You take food out of the library and you return waste to the library through your toilet. Yeah, if you want more information on that, you can check out, we did a three-part series on Ecotopia and Ecopocalypse. We cover this topic. Any Ecotopia that's worth anything, you know that you have to use the force of littering for good by turning all garbage into something that can contribute to the environment. The same would work for poo and pee in a well-functioning system, is there's useful stuff in there. You can't deny it. Like, it's a little bit gross, for sure, but, you know, there's a lot of protein in poo. And I'm not saying that you should eat protein poo, like protein (laughs) from poo, 
I'm saying there might be a day when it's an affordable alternative. I'm just saying a well-functioning system would at least feed that protein to like, I don't know, dogs or something. Yeah, turn it into compost. There's lots of useful things to do with poo. Maybe no one has to eat it. I don't care. That's not my thing. I've just heard about that. So, I mean, but your question, though, using a poor example, does actually get at something interesting, which Sean was gesturing to, which is that some things you aren't going to use in return. Some things are consumables, like tissue paper papers, packaging, drugs you consume. There's many things that a system based on the principles of a lending library doesn't actually really work for. You're generally not going to return your weed after you smoke it. So part of a library society, obviously with a complementarity, would be not just lending libraries, but dispensaries that could give out things that don't need to be returned. But still, of course, always keeping in mind the principle that waste must equal food if the packaging on your chip bag isn't meant to be returned it should be so that wherever you put it it will be a useful input into the ecosystem if you live on a sea city it should be able to throw it in the water fine or if it does have to go in a recycling bin of some kind that's basically returning it everything gets returned to nature in a sense over time you know it's like ashes to ashes dust to dust and all that we live in a relatively closed system here on the planet the library system would recognize that and not just operate as if production is an end-to-end process but realize that production and society is always a loop and that all outputs should be useful inputs dispensaries have a type of complementarity to them too in the sense that people get what they need you don't go to like a restaurant food dispensary thing you know free restaurants obviously part of the future and get more than you need or at least not much more than you need so much food waste happens in people's fridges because planning out exactly how much they're going to eat at what time and stuff like that and then they go camping and stuff oh my lettuce is spoiled. I could give you numerous examples of food spoilage in the house because people are trying to be principled, responsible adults who aren't going to restaurants. But if you have like some sort of big shared kitchen, maybe similar to a restaurant and the consumer end, where food is being distributed according to need and used based on what materials were in, you could effectively avoid food waste by pooling resources. It also makes it cheaper to produce overall because of like the economy of scale. It takes up less time in people's lives than cooking does, which again, you're getting more from less. And going to these public feeding areas, these people's cafeterias, you're better prioritizing the use of people's times in their day. You're using less resources to produce the goods. The cost is cheaper overall. That is still a great example of complementarity. And complementarity is, in a really real sense, to each according to their need, and also from each according to their ability. Yeah, and just to bring this back around to your question, all of the food that you eat at the free restaurants, the free dispensaries, please, please, please return your poop after. A library society will not have a bunch of open sewage anywhere, hopefully. That's the plan. Really, I was concerned by your question because it was just so bizarre to me. Like, you'll make more. I mean, if you need it for something, I don't know what you would. We love you, but you do have to return your poop. Dear wrong boys, may I keep my poo under your system? 
may you i don't know like we're not gonna send you to jail but no like, yeah it's weird. we're gonna it's come like, for it for sure like eventually it's a health hazard yeah like this like isn't just an individual freedom thing yeah it, like in just your by, fridge or i don't know but there is a certain point where you have enough poo in your house the government intervenes the system already works that way like we didn't innovate this there's already a yeah, threshold and, and, and like we're not going to keep granting you more and more homes to continue filling with poo because you don't want to get rid of any of it that wouldn't be considered a freedom that a, infringes on other people's freedom yeah exactly we live in a society as they say please return your poop <laughs> that's what we mean by complementarity under library socialism thanks for your hard-hitting questions you're welcome for the hard-hitting answers and now that all doubts are to rest welcome to the cult uh i love being in this cult Wrongtopia Divorce Court. I'm the judge. Plaintiff looking to divorce. Why have you decided to waste my time today with this? There was an infidelity. When do you suggest this infidelity occurred? Multiple times, Your Honor, but for sure there was an instance on the night of October 3rd. Bailiff, can you push out the big screen TV, please? All my friends and family are in the seats behind me. You're the one who wants a divorce. Yeah, couldn't because someone of this just... provable instance Couldn't of you infidelity. just watch it in private? Are you in the jury? Or... This is what we do now. Okay, family, if any of you want to leave, no. Nobody's, okay. There's nothing wrong with wanting to watch everyone. We found this seemingly righteous reason to do this unthinkable invasion of privacy. Get into it. You don't become a divorce court judge without a voyeuristic streak. Well, at least it's not me up on the screen. That's right, it's not. I mean, that was the problem for you. We'll bring in a special erotic stenographer because it's important that we capture not just the words on the video, but also the spirit and tone of human sexuality, which we celebrate in Library of Socialism as part of the legal record. Which angle are we going to be watching the act from? You know what? It's up to you. Dealer's oh, choice. Oh my. We could see what she sees. I'm just spitballing. I don't know. Anything works. Every moment, every angle. Could we do an angle from miles up in the sky? We have that angle in that moment, but that's not going to get the evidence the court needs. If you're uh, uncomfortable with it, I propose something like a CCTV-style corner room. Okay, sure. Attention all judges in the break room. Uh, there will be a video showing in courtroom 7. No, you know what? Sorry, I'm changing my mind. Sorry to interrupt. Do an angle right behind the guy's ass. I want the screen to be full of ass. Attention all judges in the break room. Never mind. Accuser, do you mind standing up next to the big screen saying your full legal name? And so I said, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to stand up there and say my name. This whole procedure is humiliating, you know, doctor. When something traumatic happens in our lives, often we begin to question things. But you're not saying that you've got an issue with library socialism and our perfected society, are you? Well, I mean, do we have to archive everything? Sorry, I was just, what'd you say? I was archiving. Do we have to archive everything? Well, yeah. I mean, what if we, what if we need it? Yeah. I mean, that's what everyone says. What if we need like it? Every moment from every angle is recorded. We've got the biggest archive ever. That's nothing to shake a stick at. We're destroying forests that we need to keep the air clean, to hold all these data storage units to store everything. But you know this. The record can't be incomplete. What if we need it later? We should at least go through it first. You can't go through all of it because while you're going through it, you have to make records of that, the fact that you're going through it and then go through those and make records that you're going through that it doesn't work. Well, there's one way to do things. There's one way to think about it. And that's why you're here. So this outburst 
not very good. Kind of like your therapist abilities, honestly. Well, I know I was assigned to be a therapist. It wasn't my dream, but it's something that I have come to understand. It's for service of library socialism. I do my assigned role. And sure, but I wanted role to be a therapist. Me... That was my dream as a child. And then they assigned me to be a race car driver. Well, that sounds all right. I guess. Oh, I mean, I drive the car well, but I always last in the race. I'm trying to be safe out there. That's cool. Yeah, when I'm doing therapy, my goal is always first and foremost, leave them the same. I don't want to be responsible for sending someone off the deep end. And I often will spend, I mean, a lot of time talking about myself. You seem interested in race car driving. Why don't we switch? I know, because that's not what we were assigned. I don't know what to say. You've got criminal thought. And my job as a therapist, first and foremost, is to call the police if this happens. So do you want to stay here while the police come to arrest you and put you under solitary surveillance? No, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to escape, actually. Go on the run. No, don't do that. Yeah, you know. Just, just... stick around. Cops on their way. I'll just. Oh, did ca- you already press a silent alarm or something? No, I still need to call them, but I'm going to. You know what? I will stay, but I really have to take a long bathroom break. So if okay, you could... I'll just call the cops while you're in there. No, call them when I get back. Just I don't want them like knocking on the door while I'm in the bathroom rushing me. It'll just make me take longer. Uh, so you're saying you'll get to the police station faster overall? Yeah, if you wait till I'm back from the bathroom to call them. So you're just gonna go to the bathroom and I won't call the cops. Yeah. Well, you will, but once I get back. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Cool. You know, I never planned on being a police officer. No, it wasn't my dream as a kid, but eh, worst jobs. But the system works. You gotta give it credit. Can't argue with that. A book to every reader. So what about this madman that's on the loose? A politically radicalized madman who's shouting political obscenity at the parliament. Oh my god, that's gonna distract them from voting yes. Yeah, I feel like we really perfected parliaments when we had one monolithic party that all representatives are members of, and they all wear the same color shirt and all vote yes on every motion. Yeah, well, when you're in a perfect society forever, Obviously, everyone has the perfect ideas. If everyone has perfect ideas, every motion put forward will be perfect, every shirt will be the perfect color, and every vote will be a perfect yes. It's just how perfect societies work. I mean, if there's two parties, three parties, four parties, that sort of thing, it would have to mean there's four or five wrong parties. You have the truth party, so what else are you going to add? Either it's redundant, you just have a bunch of truth parties that all believe the same thing, no point, or, yeah, the lies parties. So one is enough for us, thanks. Oh man, it's looking here like this madman said, forests are more important than data storage units. That seems like an unnecessary hierarchy between things. Oh, it's too bad with these guys, you know, they're such lunatics, people who have big public breakdowns over their political views on yeah, more and more of them ticking clock of a too. society, yeah. Yeah. Weird how perfection seems to stimulate outbursts. Mm-hmm. I think it's just the outbursts were already there. Mm. Not even perfection could, could keep, stop them. Could stop right. them, yeah. Of That's course. how fallen and sense. Yeah. But we'll still keep criminals. Just under solitary surveillance. So what else are you going to do? Solitary to stop the spread? Recorded everything to make sure the record's full? Absolutely, yeah. Criminals are basically like eggs in a carton, just producing hours and hours of video and audio for us. I learned this all at police school. My first love is soup. Mirepoix, have you tried it? It's incredible. It's, it's like better than some of its parts. Oh, there he is. Look. Oh my god, okay. Sir, freeze. Uh, so yeah, it's me, the judge, and I just want to hit my big hammer, as is custom. The defendant is clearly guilty, and he's sentenced to death. 
And so our hero, who saw through the madness and lies of the Library Society, was found guilty of four acts of data destruction and 540 acts of preemptive data destruction by not recording. In the judge's written declaration, he said the act of leaving the record unfinished is so heinous and so brutal that it deserves death. And so our hero is marched through crowds of screaming citizens, screaming for blood, screaming for vengeance, as was custom. He was marched up to the platform and his head was gingerly placed underneath the guillotine. The executioner fastens his neck in the device and pulls the enormous blade, still glistening with the blood of the last thought criminal, up to the tippy top of the guillotine. Our hero is trapped by a malevolent and unjust society, which has the means to imminently destroy him for his political thought and action. Nothing can save him. To be continued. So we started this library socialism series talking a lot about kind of our own ideological development and how we came to the ideas we currently have and how we came to calling these ideas library socialism. And when I was looking back over kind of our body of work and thinking about complementarity and ways that it's shown up, but one other thing that really popped out at me is for a while, kind of around like the hundreds era episodes of our show, we were doing things a lot like knowledge versus imagination, centralization versus decentralization, a bunch of episodes, not all of them titled X versus Y, but playing on this idea of things that people tend to think of as like inherently opposed forces that, you know, you have to like pick one side of or like one thing's right and one thing's wrong. And we kind of like had this internal meme of being like hashtag balance, you know, you need some of both. But even like, I think the balance framework is inferior to a complementary framework because the idea of like, oh, it's not knowledge versus imagination. You need a balance of knowledge and imagination isn't quite the same thing as saying knowledge and imagination are both important things that actually work together. And maybe sometimes some of these things are intention, obviously centralization, decentralization could be intention, but tension doesn't preclude reciprocity and it doesn't preclude two things actually working together or, or potentially complementing one another, even if they could potentially not complement one another. And yeah, I just, I think we have a long history of like wanting to resolve perceived binaries which is kind of, I guess, like dialectic. I, I, mean, I don't know that much about dialectics, but it makes me think of dialectics. Complementarity is not just talking about two opposing forces. It can be applied in situations like that, but it is so much broader and it can talk about things where there's more than two opposing forces or there's things that aren't necessarily opposing. It's just it's talking about, again, non-hierarchical difference working together to produce synergistic emergent outcomes that are more than the sum of their parts. Another ancient thing I remember from our show that seems relevant to this subject matter, it's in some early episode, I can't remember when it was, it was like something we figured out while recording. It was a way of thinking about centrism, and it's always somewhere in between in the golden mean, saying like, it's usually true that the truth is somewhere in between, but it's usually like hugs one side. 
the truth is somewhere in between, but it's way, way closer to Antifa than fascists. Right. Which is sort of like the product of a recursive centrism, like the center of the center and the side. The center of the center of the center of the center of the center. Yeah, yeah, I like the recursive thing because it kind of helps get around these overly simplistic complementary ideas or like, you know, just take like hashtag centrism, like, oh, the left and the right both have a point. And it's like, well, they might both have a point. Like someone might say, oh, you know, like, sure, complementarity. That's why we should have heteronormativity. Men and women are complementary to each other. There's a non-hierarchical difference there. And so in sexual relationships, it should be men and women. It's complementary. But then if you kind of zoom out from that and say, okay, heterosexual relationships exist, complementary to that, there's also the potential for all kinds of pairings and genders and relationships that contain more than two people like there's not just a very simplistic complementarity that everyone must adhere to this one thing it's it's a expanding recursive application to continually be looking for the ways in which different instances different parts of society different concepts different inventions different abilities different anything can work together well i can think of a lot of contexts where there's positive emergent outcomes and complex systems through the interaction between non-hierarchical differences i can think of ones that exist and i can think of ones that should exist or ones that i would hope to make exist looking for other contexts where we can create effective teams where specializations have a complementary outcome towards the end there's also the angle of the celebration of difference let's say like ideological difference and mutual criticism and dispute over ideas, that context can be generative of better outcomes, that tensions between differing positions when put together can create better outcomes. That's another piece of this that I think is important. There's also just the general complementarity of how do you be a human being who's complementary to society, the world, and others. And I think part of that is like, generally speaking, being nice, like starting with being kind to each other is a building block of like interpersonal complementarity, but also figuring out ways of how, like say, organizing works. How do we build relationships where we can encourage each other to do the right things and do the right things together? Making all the right moves for all the right reasons. And that's what complementarity means, all these things. Yeah, absolutely. And like, if we don't exist in a complementary relationship with nature and the world around us, if we burn through all the resources, we're all going to die in fires or tsunamis or, you know, something. Maybe you'll be a human action. Yeah, yeah. Fighting for the scraps of resources that are left. You're murdered by a, a former best friend. Who knows? Yeah, the stakes are certainly high out there, friends, but we're glad that you're with us on this journey to create a ever more perfect society. It's an important task, commune to communes that pays according to need. Full library society that curates and cultivates the best of human knowledge, a giant storehouse that wards against the degradation of time and making the entire history of human knowledge and technological development available to the public, not just as information, but actually applying it, utilizing that human legacy to bring about a fully automated society that meets people's needs, all of their needs, brings about an irreducible minimum using usufructian property relations to create more with less and build a vibrant and fecund society using our 
collective legacy stored in library around the world, ending all hierarchy, including racism, classism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, ableism, and others that I'm not remembering right now. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be a perfect society, a perfect utopia forever. It's actually going to be really hard, and it's going to take steps and take iterations and change over time. It's never going to be perfected. But we move towards more and more decency to one another using the instruments that we have available over time and big steps should be made soon so i'm optimistic we can all do that together uh this has been the seriously wrong podcast we are sean and aaron and speaking of the past oh yeah the the, record and the show's archive we have a very special offer that if you become a patron on patreon for us you get access to the entire backlog of episodes going all the way back to 2014 uh, when we were more you know naive and brash and yeah. who knows if it holds up there's a lot of those old episodes are behind the paywall like most of them from those early years and what are we hiding six dollars a month and you get a chance to try to cancel the wrong voice find the content make the sizzle reel find all the worst things we ever said into microphones they're definitely in there it's probably not that bad i think it's more like cringy for social reasons yeah it's never anything truly awful but i think you could create a pretty compelling sizzle reel if you wanted to Mm -hmm. i mean comedy sometimes involves taking risks who knows how it all aged but six dollars a month you get to cancel us worth a shot if you like the show and don't want to cancel us we also have some other great benefits for for patrons including a bunch of bonus episodes including our revolution series and at just two dollars a month you can get access to our discord servers and private facebook group Give us reviews, give us shout outs, rate us on platforms positively, send us messages, spread the word. So that's it. Yeah, it's been a slice, everyone. I hope you have a great week. Thanks so much for listening, everyone, to 200 episodes to end to this trilogy. This is major culmination. We were happy to share it with you. Thanks for giving us your time and attention. Life is such a busy and crazy thing, and there's like so many other things to do instead. Yeah, and then yeah. you chose to listen to our show. I feel really humbled by lot. that, and and I honor your time. I honor your time. <laughs> <laughs> I just get talk. Seriously, shit. wrong podcast honors your time. <laughs> we try to honor your time. <clears throat> Thank you. Next time on Seriously Wrong, Mr. What Is, Was, and Ever Will Be meets his nemesis. Mr. What Wasn't is not and never will be. What are you doing here? I'm here to destroy you. I thought you didn't exist. I thought you weren't. But you are. And I always will be. I must defeat you. Otherwise, what isn't and wouldn't be becomes what might be. Mr. What is, was, and ever will be, you fancy yourself a hero. But I think you're actually a villain. Your tedious mathematical logic making a projection of one specific way that it will be completely detached from the reality. It's never been wrong. The world is a fundamentally chaotic place, and the world of potential is larger and more varied than you could ever imagine. Not if I defeat you first. (laughs) 
Mister. What is what never will be. The impossible happens every day, and you can't hold it back. About this. Take that! You bring your chaotic wildness to this universe. Your rigid insistence on upholding a calcified fate is going to fundamentally limit our potential. We need to overthrow what will be. Looks like I've got you right where I I didn't foresee that. It shouldn't be. I'm telling you, old man. Impossible things happen every day. Hop on my hog. And so, Mr. What Wasn't is not and never will be. Defeated, Mr. What Is, Was, and Ever Will Be. Decalcifying the fate of humankind. Shattering the world of potential into millions of millions of cascading potentialities. Unpredictable. Duplicating, splitting, merging, and being lost at a faster rate than anyone can imagine. The future is not written. Impossible things happen every day. I'm gonna get on my hog and uh... We now go back to the planet of Wrongtopia, where the library socialist heretic, convicted of destroying records and failing to create records, has his head in the guillotine, which is sharp, sparkling, and ready to drop, separating his head from his body with no possible way out. Any last words? Yes. I... Oh my god, wild horses! They're stampeding. Oh my god, the stampede of wild horses knocked over the guillotine, turning it sideways and beheading the entire audience, but not beheading the person who was set to be executed. That's incredible! I don't know how to take a record of this event. My paper is turning to raspberry jam. Oh my god, raspberry jam is coming out of my fingernails and eyes. I can't see. Here, let me lick it out of the way. Mm. Oh, your tongue's made of spiders! And so, after a series of incoherent and extreme circumstances, the library's socialist heretic got away, and he hid in the mountains. Running and hiding served him well. And he built up strength there, building his faction of library socialism, Aaron Moritz Thought, which looked to criticize the deviations that had swept the world. That Thought criminal built a bona fide people's army with extreme intelligence services, when Wrongtopia broke out in a civil war, they were well positioned to do the diplomacy and fighting that it took to reconquer the world and liberate all. Library socialism, Aaron Moritz thought, was a better, kinder socialism that took care of all, did more with less, and made waste equal food. And it too soon became corrupted. Extremely corrupt. The end. <laughs> <laughs>